We're looking this morning at the subject, a glimpse of heaven. If you look at your bulletin outline, why a glimpse is all we get. That's all we get in the scripture, a glimpse of heaven. Why only a glimpse? Well, <clears throat> number one, details are forbidden. That's why. When Paul was defending his apostleship to the church of Corinth, he wrote to them, and here's what he wrote. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, he's said some other things about his apostleship, which prove it. And then he gets to this statement. He says, and now I want to tell you about visions and revelations, which are part of being in an apostle, you see. So he says, I will go on to these things. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. He repeats it twice because, you see, he doesn't know exactly how he experienced this, but he knows he did experience it. He was caught up, I'm reading scripture now, he was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses even if I should choose to boast I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 7. A thorn is like a reminder that something's wrong. The other day I was working on my door. I was putting in a new door in the garage, and I caught my finger, not on a thorn, but on a nail that was sticking out. It's still sore this morning. I know it's there. A thorn is like that. It's it's not a knife wound. It's not mortal. It's not a bullet. It's not anything like that. It's not poison. It's it's just a reminder. Something just isn't quite right. It's annoying. And if you've ever had a thorn in your foot or on your person somewhere, you probably get out the needle and you try to get in there and get that thing out. And, and you might need help depending on where it is. And, and it just, you want it out because it gets inflamed and it bothers you. And it just kind of reminds you that something is wrong in that appendage or what have you. So Paul uses it in a spiritual sense. And he says, in order to keep me from getting conceited <laughs> because of these great revelations I saw, God gave me this thorn. What did he give me? A messenger of Satan to torment. Can you imagine that? God sent a demon to keep Paul humble. Now, they can't possess us, but they can torture us. They can make life miserable for us. And so the rest of Paul's life, he had this nagging thorn. So he was saying, he was giving testimony here in this text of his own experience. And notice how cautious he is as he relates this account. He's caught up to paradise. He witnesses many phenomenal things, but he admits things that a man is not permitted to tell. That's a key phrase. He could boast about this experience but he restrains himself. Listen to his own words. I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or what I say. You see, he's not on an ego trip here. He has no intention of exploiting the fact that he has seen and heard things about heaven which no earthly mortal has experienced but him. And just in case he might be tempted to the sin of pride, he tells the Corinthians to keep me from becoming conceited 
because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, contrast this to all the recent accounts of people who have claimed to have gone to heaven in some kind of outer body experience, they cannot wait to tell all they have allegedly seen and heard. They write books about their experience for all to read. They make movies so Hollywood can wow the audience with special effect technology to heighten the imagination and sensationalize the fiction. And it is fiction, brethren, because you can be sure if the Apostle Paul heard inexpressible things that a man may not be permitted to tell, the Apostle Paul now, You can be sure that God has not authorized a four-year-old boy who claims to have had an outer body experience to write a book with dad's help entitled, Heaven is for Real. Which Amazon advertises, and I quote, the true story of the four-year-old son of a small-town Nebraska pastor who during, during emergency surgery slips from consciousness and enters heaven. Colton said he met his miscarried sister, whom no one had told him about, and his grandfather, who died 30 years before Colton was born. And then he shared impossible to know details about each. He described the horse that only Jesus can ride, about how really big God and his chair are and how the Holy Spirit shoots down power from heaven to help us. And then they made a film out of the book. There are over 9,000 reviews of the book and or film on Amazon. from people who read the book or saw the film. Let me read some of them. A guy that calls himself Heavy Revy. Colton Burple's story was a refreshing and surprisingly accurate portrait of what awaits each of us who are destined to heaven. I read the book with a critical eye, looking for those little details that would prove the story to be at best inaccurate or at worst a fraud. I couldn't find them. His tale seemed honest. Another review. This book is off the charts, so good. My favorite parts, what Jesus really looks like, how really big God is. His description of what the Holy Spirit looks like, he's kind of blue. In the end, when little Colton talks about the battle against the monsters and the bad guys and how all the men have to go out to fight along with Jesus and the girls have to stay behind, basically most of the parts they cut out of the recent blockbuster movie. Though the movie is okay, the book is top-notch. Or again, when I, what I got most out of this book was learning about the power of God, the love he and Jesus share for everyone, and how pure honesty is so much louder than selected prayer. You have to read the book to know what I'm talking about. The most incredible thing about this book is that I actually felt enlightened. I did not expect that from reading this. I was enlightened. Many of the reviews, I read a number of them, use words like, well, could have, might have been possible, it's believable, it's an honest depiction, it's true, it's accurate, and so on and so on. Brethren, these are all terms of accommodation. 
That is, we want to believe, and so we make allowance, accommodation in our thoughts for the possibility of such things. Might have, could have, possible. If we were viewing heaven and hell, to name another, as pure fiction, then speculation and Hollywood hype would be appropriate. But the Bible tells us what is or what is to come, not what men, certainly not what children with a vivid imagination fantasize could be. Thus the writers of our confession of faith word it this way, the Holy Scripture, your book in your hand there, the Holy Scripture is the only Listen to all these adjectives. Only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now every adjective in that statement has significance, but notice in particular the word sufficient. Sufficient. Sufficient means you have the complete account. You have it. It's in your lap right this morning. You have the complete account. You are not to look elsewhere. Regardless of the topic, heaven, hell, salvation, marriage, sex, the afterlife, a business work ethic, good parent, good child, What God wants you to know and expects you to act upon is found in the scripture record and nowhere else. This is because anywhere else would be mere speculation based on human reasoning. And what does God say about human reasoning? Let me read it for you. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, the gospel, to save those who believe. Colossians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20 and 21. Well, that being true, how much less the account of a four-year-old boy. Our society is not enduring sound doctrine. Paul said the day will come. Well, it's here. Listen to what God says. I will make boys their officials, mere children, will govern them. Isaiah 3, verse 4. And in verse 12, he says, Use a preth, my people. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. You know what God is saying in this text in Isaiah? He's saying, I'm going to curse you. You wouldn't listen to me. I sent my prophets. You wouldn't listen to them. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to let children teach you. I'm going to bring them out as your guides. And you'll follow them. And this this will be the result. Your guides will lead you astray. They turn you from the path. It's a curse. It's a curse. To have children and the uneducated in the things of God be our teachers. But Paul says that day's coming. And I'm saying that day's here. People have itching ears. so They don't want to hear what we have to say. They're not into doctrine. They're not into uh, teaching from the scriptures. They just want an experience. The only reason we get, well, one of the reasons we get a glimpse of heaven is that the details 
are forbidden. There's a second reason why a glimpse of heaven is all we get, and that's because, and this is going to be humbling, our comprehension cannot handle a full-blown explanation. I'm talking about us who know the Lord. Even we who have the Spirit, our comprehension can't handle a full-blown revelation. Let me read it for you. As it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. You can't even think it. You can't even imagine it. Let me read again. Now we see, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then, when we're with the Lord, we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, writes Paul, then I shall know fully as I am, even as I am fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Even the Apostle Paul says, you know, what we know now about the spiritual things is it's like looking in a mirror. Uh, now you have to remember, what, what was a mirror in, in Paul's day? Was it um, silver floated on the back of glass that really gives an accurate reflection? No, it was burnished brass. So I think uh, King James says we look in a glass darkly. It's, it's kind of, you can see the, an image there and you can see that it's you if you're looking in it. But you don't get a clear, beautiful picture like our mirrors today. So he's saying, that's me. We're looking in this burnished bronze, and we know in part, we can see that the figure is there and so forth, but I can't see fully. Oh, and one more text, 1 John 3, verse 10. Dear friends, writes John, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. First John 3, verse 2. You see, these are future things. While here, these texts all speak of believers who know the Lord as Savior, yes, and yet, they all confess that their knowledge of God and the things to come is limited. They tell us that our comprehension, even with enlightenment that comes from the Holy Spirit, is partial. Even the Apostle Paul said, For we know in, in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9 and 10. Okay, then how do we live? Paul says we live by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Simply put, the expression, seeing is believing, which is the mantra of unbelievers, because skepticism in them is Satan's deception. That mantra, seeing is believing, is reversed in believers to believing is seeing. And for a person that doesn't believe, they cannot see. The writer of Hebrews words it this way, Now faith, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2, and the entire 11th chapter, as you know from your study, are the many exploits and achievements of God's people throughout the centuries, all of which were accomplished not by human ingenuity and strength, but by faith in God. The God they couldn't see, but they trusted. Verse 6 of Hebrews 11, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. I could say it this way, nothing moves the hand of God to act on behalf of people more than faith. God wants people to stop 
trusting in their own intelligence and strength and know-how and acquired skills and to trust him instead. Paul said to the Corinthians, who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Well, if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Think of all the things that you are or have. Intelligence, know-how, mechanical aptitude, reasoning capability, problem-solving, acumen, even opportunities to put these things into play. All these things have come from God as his gift to you. And Paul came to the realization, I have been crucified. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Why do we only have a glimpse of heaven? We have limited comprehension. We are what we are. <laughs> now the day is coming when we'll have full comprehension, as full, full as a creature can have. We'll never be God. That's Satan's lie. But we'll be full as creatures can know. All right. So you need to know that these are some limitations to the topic of heaven. And you need to be careful about buying books on heaven because the authors, even in my day, Hal Lindsey and some of those guys, the late great planet Earth and all this sensational stuff, they made movies out of that too. Speculation. They haven't been there. Only Paul's been there. And he ain't talking. And he didn't write it down. Now that brings us to our second point. What has God told us about heaven? It's not like we don't have anything. And that's our text, Revelation 21. What is it that he's told us? Well, number one, it will be a new heaven. Verse 1, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Peter prophesied, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Answers his own question. You ought to be living lives of holiness and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. The elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Wow, 2 Peter 3, 10-13. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. A new home, and the new home is the home of righteousness. Now, the Greek word in Peter's usage and in every usage of John in the Revelation, and there are many, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 3, verse 12, a new name, Revelation 2, verse 17, Revelation 3, verse 12, a new song that the saints sing, Revelation 5, verse 9, a new heaven and a new earth, our text, Revelation 21, verse 1, and 2 Peter 3, verse 13, all things new, Revelation 21, verse 5. Every time this word new shows up in the writings of the Revelation by John or in Peter's works is the word kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S, which means not brand new in reference to time, but refurbished. New, in reference to time, that means that it was not here yesterday, but it's new today. Brand new is the Greek word neos, from which we get new, the, our word new. But kainos means new in the sense of to renew or refurbish. 
It is the word for new that is applied to something worn out or altered somewhat and must be reconditioned. Let me give you an example. Your sofa is 10 years old. The nylon upholstery is threadbare and some of the cotton batting on the arms is showing through. And you can say, this old sofa needs to go to the scrap heap. I'm heading down to Buyer's Furniture or Art Van or wherever, and I'm going to buy a new one. Neos is the word that would be used for that. New in the sense of brand new. A sofa which has never been used since it came off the assembly line at Lazy Boy Manufacturing. That is one option. That's one way you can use the word new. Or, or you could say, that old sofa needs a new cover. I'm taking it to A&Z Upholstery to have them redo the upholstery. And when it's delivered back to you in three weeks, you can tell all your friends, how do you like my new sofa? Kainos is the word. New in the sense of refurbished. It looks new. It functions at new as new because the springs were retied and strengthened. It smells new because the fabric sewn in place came off a fresh bolt of material. All this is true, and yet the sofa still has the same shaped back, the same curved arms, the same carved feet that support it, The substructure that comprises the original sofa is still there. It's still recognizable. You know it was your sofa. This is the word both Peter and John used to describe the promise, new heaven and new earth. When you look at it, when God looks at it, it will be refurbished from what man has done to it and Satan has done to it with their sin. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Sounds new, doesn't it? Well, this occurred under the theocracy. Same wording. Let me read it for you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. Now, as you know, Israel forsook God for idols. And we as well. All we like sheep have gone astray, writes the prophet. So in the revelation, God is promising the return of the theocracy. What Peter called a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. 2 Peter 3, verse 13. You can't have righteousness without God. And God is promising a day when he's going to come. And as with Adam and Eve, walk with us in the cool of the garden. And it will be righteous. This was and this is a reality now with believers was promised in the new covenant. Let me read it for you. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's that Old Testament phraseology again. But he's talking about the new covenant. Let me read on. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or his man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, they will all know me. Here is a theocracy of righteousness. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more by calling this covenant new, and it's this Greek word kainos again. It's like the original covenant, but better. It's remade. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete in aging will soon Disappear. All of this from Hebrews 8, verses 10 through 13. The remake renders the old covenant obsolete 
and subject to replacement. Never, Israel never did arrive at a kingdom, a theocracy of just utter righteousness. They couldn't do it. The old covenant couldn't do that for them. But the new covenant written in Christ's blood, that accomplishes it. And right now, we're struggling with our sin as yet, but the day is coming, this new heaven, new earth, kingdom of righteousness, where God, again, promises, I'll dwell with you, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, but it's going to be complete and forever. Number two, verse four, talking about what is heaven going to be like. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And then everything that follows is associated with our sinful world. Let me list them for you. And they're in your bulletin there. Number one, no more death. No more death. Now, this is different, brethren, than rejoicing in death, knowing that for the believer, absent from the body is present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. This is also more than Paul's declaration, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. These texts that I just read are remedies for death. And what Adam's sin, plus our own sin, brought upon the race and upon ourselves. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. Very true, very true. Or again, if we have been united with him, Jesus, like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. All this from Romans 6, verses 5 through 8. This is all marvelous for the believer. Victory over death and its damning effect because of the work of Christ. But, but, that is not the point of our text. John is not talking about a fix for death, but the elimination of death. There will be no more death. What is death? By Bible definition, death is the wages of sin. But in a kingdom where there is no longer any sin, death does not exist. Let me read it for you. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. These are other words. Now, catch on to this. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable, that's death, must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal, people that are subject to death, with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. All this from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 through 57. This is something different. He is referring to what we're reading from John in the Revelation. People in heaven may have died to arrive there, but once there, they are immortalized. They become imperishable. They cannot die any longer. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 and 26. No death. Because no sin. Wow. 
marvelous. If you make it to glory and you ride in on the blood of Christ, you don't have to worry about another revolt like Satan. No, no other attempt like that. No destruction of the race. No more falling Adam and us in Adam. No more of that. No more death. Number two. No more mourning or crying. Verse four. This word penthos. P-E-N-T-H-O-S Greek. The intense outcry of a person who is suffering. It's used of Jesus suffering. For example, as the Paschal Lamb. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Suffering. And as believers, we also enter into suffering simply because we advocate and promote the gospel of Jesus to all men who may resort to persecution to silence us. We're seeing a lot of that of late in our own country. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. Or again, but even if you should suffer, writes Peter, for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone Ask you to give you the reason to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. First Peter three, fourteen through seventeen. We suffer. It's this word, pentas. Suffering, crying, however, is part of living in a sinful world. But John describes a day coming, a kingdom realized, in which there is no longer any mourning or crying over any of the things which bring about such in our day. How about mourning or crying tears of regret? Have you ever thought of that? Regret either for work left undone or opportunities to stand with Christ that you just let slip by. What about regrets for that unbelief of heart which denied Christ in the moment of witness? You had an opportunity but you remained silent. Or about regret for the times when you were bold enough to speak for Christ but you realized afterwards that your words were caustic and stinging and hurting and did not contribute to the edification of your listener. All of us, all of us to a man have regrets. Many of them over things we should have done or things we did do that we're ashamed of. Those justifiable tears born out of our sin, God promises to wipe every tear from your eyes in such a conclusive purge that they will never return again. No more regrets. No more tears. No more mourning. No more crying. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Matthew 5, verse 4. Listen to the psalmist. He says to God, You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord my God, I will give you thanks. Psalm 30, verse 11 and 12. That's what heaven's going to be like all the time. No more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. Songs of joy, yeah. (laughs) Wailing, no. Mourning, no. Third, no more pain. Now, when we hear that expression, no more pain, this is in verse 4. 
immediately, I think immediately, our minds go to the pain of a physical nature, right? Oh, great. No more arthritis. No more herniated discs, which I have. No more sore muscles after, after a day's work. No more joint pain, headaches, adhesions from surgery, toothaches, birth pains. No more pain. Hallelujah. Okay, I concur. But what about spiritual pain? Ever think of that? Pain from a lost love. Pain from a friend who betrayed you. Pain from a co-worker who sabotaged your work before the boss and made you look bad. The pain of misrepresentation. The pain of slander. The pain of seeing others you love continue on in a life of willful sin without repentance. That brings us pain. The pain of seeing those you love grow cold and distant towards one another. The pain of disowning Christ or not living in obedience to his directives as you should. The pain of making excuses for what was easily doable by God's grace. The failures in your We say it, we believe it, we say, boy, there is a lot of pain in our world. And there is indeed. It's all caused by sin, done by us or to us. And it's real, and it hurts, and it causes tears and sorrow. But in verse 5 of our text, Jesus says, hey, I'm making everything new. And then he said to John, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. No more pain. John, write it down. Get it down. I want my people to know no more pain. Now for the fourth one, look down at verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, says John, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What are temples? Well, in biblical days, temples are places of worship. So this is John's way of saying that the persons of God and His Son will finally and forever be worshipped alone as the one true and only God. In other words, no more icons, no more idolatry, no other gods before them. What are we going to be doing in eternity? We're going to be worshiping God, finally, (laughs) with all the merit that he deserves. And everyone there will be on the same page. No more temples. It's a person, God the Father and his Son. Number five, verse 23 and following. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Revelation 21, verse 23 through 25. Darkness, night, in Scripture, often speaks of ignorance, but also it speaks of wickedness. Here the nations are mentioned. And they're mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 20, verse 3. And Satan is thrown into the abyss to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. There's no place in the new earth for what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 19, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There will be no Satan. There will be no evil. 
There will not be that kind of darkness. Verse 27 of our text says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the ones that go to heaven. So in closing, I have to ask this question. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? You say, well, I don't know. How can I tell? Ask yourself, what is my relationship to Jesus Christ? Do you see him as a necessary Savior? The one, the only one, who had to die if you were ever to be forgiven and ever to be equipped to enter heaven, his home? Or... Are you hoping to reach heaven some other way? As as though there were another way. I'm using hypothetical here. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way. (laughs) There it is. Is what? He goes on. Tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep penned by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. John 10, verse 1. How do thieves and robbers attempt entry into a dwelling? Well, they break a window or they jimmy the door lock or they crawl through a gap in the foundation. And then we read, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they, his disciples, did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate. Now, is that plain enough for you guys? I am the gate for the sheep. John 10, verse 6. Any other way to try to get into heaven, you're coming in another way, and Jesus says, I know who you are. You're a thief and a robber. You're not going to get in. Even more emphatically, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth. I am the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me, through me. John 14, verse 6. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, like his little lambs, you will be entering the sheep pen through Jesus the gate and only through him. God did not sacrifice his son on a cross so that you could map out your own way to heaven. God was saying in his son Jesus, there's there's only one way you're going to get there. I'm willing to give you that one way. I'm willing to send my son. I'm willing to have him go to the cross to die for my people's sin. I'm doing all of that. But in doing all that, you are not going to be a thief and robber. You are not going to storm heaven. You're not going to break windows and jimmy doors. You're not coming through the gate that way. You have to come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then of all things marvelous, God grants us the faith and gives us the repentance so that even the turning away from our sin, even the believing in Jesus, is all of God's great goodness to us. He gets the praise. He gets the glory. There is no personal pat on the back. Boy, I did well. I believed well. I studied well. I reformed my life. No, you didn't. God did it all. And he gets the glory. 
Brethren, I hope your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And if not, I'm calling on you today to repent and turn away from your sin, fall at the knees of Christ and trust him and him alone. And if you think you've outsinned your day of grace, I can tell you that if you hear his voice today, the gospel says if you hear his voice calling you, pulling you towards him to repent and believe, then harden not your heart. Don't start second guessing and all of that thing that people do. Just answer the voice. Hear the voice. Call to Christ. Turn away from your sin. And he has promised All that come to me, says Jesus. These are his own words. I will never turn away. I will never turn away. If you think you're going to be turned away, you know what voice that is? That's the wrong voice you should be. (laughs) That's Satan saying, yeah, you really think you're going to make it? In Christ, all of us make it. We stand in his righteousness. We enter heaven on his merit. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us as a a seeking people, Lord. If we're seeking you this morning, it is because you have sought us. If we're believing this morning, it's because you have granted us faith. If we are a repenting people that have turned away from our sin and are striving to live a holy life, it's because you have granted us repentance and given us the Holy Spirit by which we argue and fight against our sin. Now, Lord, bless us with this reality. And for anyone listening today who is still struggling with the whole idea, what's heaven? And I'd like to go there, but I don't know if I'm there. And I hope my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I don't know if it is. And I pray, Lord, that they would see that Christ is now calling them to come and lay down their rebellion at his feet, cast all of their cares upon him and trust him, trust him. Faith that trusts is the faith that saves. Give that to us, Lord Jesus. For your glory, we pray these things. And for our good, we pray these things.